We're going to read Revelation chapter 5, and my hope is that the truths that we find here would reorient us for this next season going forward. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'll read the text and we'll pray together once more. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable picture of this future heavenly gathering. And we pray that as we spend our time today together that your spirit would reveal what this means for our present gathering what we should be focused on and centered around in our lives and as a church. And for those who do not yet know you, I pray that today they would. Spirit of God, be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It was the great Christian author A.W. Tozer who once said, God allows things to change in order that he might establish that which cannot change. I think it's safe to say this last year, 
God has allowed a lot of things to change. I was reflecting this morning, a year ago, this time I was still living in London, England, with my family as we were prayerfully preparing for our big move back to California. For many of us, jobs have changed. Some of our relationships have changed. Maybe your living situation has changed. And even our Sunday gatherings have changed. And today, they change again. Now, some of us might be excited about a season of change. Others of us might be a little sad or fearful or even apprehensive. But in any case, it's more change. Wherever you are at on that, this spectrum, friends, I want to remind us of this truth. Every season of change is an opportunity to remember that which will never change, and that is the reality of Jesus Christ. Indeed, what matters most is that which cannot change, and that is Jesus. So what does that mean for our Sunday gatherings? What does that mean for our, our rhythms, our, our practices? What does that mean for our emphasis as a church? And what does this mean for you personally? What does it mean for your rhythms? What does it mean for your practices? And what does it mean for your emphasis as individuals? Well, Revelation chapter five reminds us. And what we find in Revelation five is a picture of a future gathering in heaven which should shape how and why we gather in the present. See, our Sundays should be like a coming attraction of this future event. Our services should be like a signpost pointing towards a glorious day when all things will be made new and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more wheelchairs, no more death because all things will be made new. Our lives, our gatherings should be like a signpost, a coming attraction pointing towards that glorious day. People should look at us. They should watch the way that we live, hear the things that we say, and, and it should prompt in them a question saying, hey, where are you headed? And you're like, well, I could tell you, turn to the book of Revelation chapter five. This is, I'm on the glory train. This is where we're headed. Who's with me? We want to live in such a way that our lives are like a signpost. Our gatherings are like a coming attraction. If you're here this morning or if you're joining us online and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to ask the question this morning. Do you have an unshakable foundation upon which to build your life? Do you have the promise of an unchangeable future? Because I want us all to see that how that happens and how it happens for the church is to be centered and focused on Jesus. He is our foundation. He is our future. And this morning, I want to take this opportunity, which represents a change of season as we're gathering inside, or rather allow the book of Revelation chapter 5 to remind us of what it is about Jesus that shapes our aims, our expectations, and our emphasis as a church that should shape the expectations 
that we have as individuals, the emphasis that we have as, as families. Now, time would fail for me to mention all the ways in which Jesus Christ reminds us of these things in this passage, but let me remind us of three. Surprising no one, because there's always three when it's me. Number one, when we gather, we gather to Jesus, our Savior. I'm sure that John the Apostle was overwhelmed just writing down the book of Revelation, which contains all kinds of visions with vivid imagery and symbols, all depicting a literal new creation, giving us a glimpse into the future, which should shape how we live in the present. But notice, it begins with a twist. Here at the beginning of chapter 5, in the midst of this heavenly gathering, John's reaction surprises us. In verse 2, it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. In the midst of this heavenly gathering, the apostle John weeps. Why? You're like, wait, shouldn't this be like an epic worship service? Why in the world, John? Why are you weeping? Because to put it simply, the world needs to be redeemed. And in this moment, he cannot see anyone who can fix it. Now you're like, how do we get this from the scroll? Like, what's happening here? Well, to understand this scene, a little explanation is helpful. All the Bible commentators believe that the scroll in Revelation 5 represents the title deed to the earth. Much like if you own a property, you might have a title deed for that property. And to open this seal would be like having the legal right to regain a lost property or to regain a lost possession. So the question here when you're reading this is, wait a minute, who is the one with the moral and spiritual authority to redeem and to restore the world? To put it simply, who can fix the problems? Across the globe, who can fix the problems in the United States of America? Who can fix the problems in Ventura County? Who can fix the problems in my own heart? Who can fix the problems in my marriage, my family, my relationships? Who is the one who can fix it? It's a question that many people are asking. But in this moment, when John looks around, he sees no one. Now, this is an incredible statement. No hero from the Bible, no angel of heaven, no king, no leader, no prophet, no politician, no church leader, no political movement, no company, no brand, no style of church, no worship team. No one has the authority or power to redeem this world except for one. In verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And John, no doubt, thrilled by this, turns and he looks. But instead of seeing a victorious lion, what does he see? In verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. The Apostle John lifts his eyes in hopes of seeing the promised victor, a lion who would conquer, and yet in a shocking scene, he turns and he sees a cut-throated lamb. The lamb, of course, plays an important role in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the blood of a lamb was offered as a sacrifice for our sin. Sin is the fundamental problem of humanity. The people of Israel in the Old Testament were taught at the very first Passover that they would be covered by the sacrifice of another. And when you move into the New Testament, John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus Christ when Jesus began his public ministry, he turned and said and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus, the Son of God, described here as both lion and lamb, shows us the great paradox of Christianity. Victory comes through what looks like defeat. True power comes through what looks like weakness. And evil is conquered. How? All through the sacrificial suffering of Jesus when he came and lived on our behalf and died on a cross in our place for all of our sins. He is the lion. He is the lamb. He is our perfect substitute, fully God and fully man. No one should pay the price for sin except man, but no one could pay that price except God. And so here we have the God-man, Jesus Christ. Only he is worthy. The one who came and lived, died, and rose again for us. Only he is worthy to open the scroll. When we gather, we gather to Jesus, our Savior. Now, up to this point, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're like, okay, that's a very obvious point. But why is it an important point to make today? Because I believe that one of our greatest temptations is to misplace our hope in lesser things. It's one of the great temptations of life in general and specifically of the Christian life. See, this passage shows clearly in vivid display. Our greatest need is to be delivered from sin and to be made new from the inside out. That is our most fundamental need. But if we do not see this need clearly, we will begin to place our hope in lesser things. See, I say this because it's very easy, even for churches, to acknowledge Jesus but start emphasizing lesser things than Jesus. It happens. You say, okay, yeah, I know it's all about Jesus, but what we really need to talk about is this. Yeah, 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 Jesus worthy under the throne of the Lamb, whatever it was we saying. But what we really need to do in your long Facebook post is address this issue. What we really need is, however you answer that question, shows what you really believe and where you are truly headed. How would we answer that question? See, here's the deal, friends. I've been reflecting on this um, 
for like the last year during all the, the craziness. You will be remembered for what you are most passionate about. That's the truth. It's not just your little bio on your social media profile, like I'm this and I'm into this and I enjoy long walks on the beach, like whatever, nobody remembers that. Sad to say, it's true. What they will remember is what you're most passionate about, what you're most vocal about. At, at the end of your life, people will not be reflecting just on things that you subscribe to, but what you were most passionate about, what you were most invested in. So I want us to ask this question as we end one season and enter into a new season. What were you most known for? When you reflect on the last year and a half, what were you most known for? What did you emphasize the most? And I have to ask that question of myself. And here's why it matters, friends. Because the minute we start emphasizing something other than Jesus as our most fundamental solution is the minute the church loses its meaning and communicates the wrong message. When we gather, we preach the word of God, which will always point us to the Son of God. And we remember that his work and his work alone deals with our greatest and most fundamental need. Indeed, it is most likely because we are forgetful that the Lord Jesus instituted a practice to remind us of the centrality of his sacrifice. It's called communion. Some of you might not have ever been in our building before. Maybe you started attending our church in the last year and a half, and now you're in here and you're kind of taking in the sights and sounds. You may notice there's actually communion elements available here on the stage. This is a practice that Jesus called us to do repeatedly in remembrance of him so that we would not be tempted to make it about anything other than him. And when we celebrate communion, we are saying together, this is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. And we do this practice every single Sunday. So from here on out, when you join us on Sundays, we will have communion available and time towards the end of the service for you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, to respond and to celebrate communion. And as we do, what we're doing is we're being reoriented again and again around the saving work of Jesus Christ. Church, do you see that even here, even in heaven, the sacrifice of Jesus will never be forgotten? So may it never be forgotten among us. Amen? What we are saying when we partake of communion and make it central, we're saying to the world and we're saying to each other that Jesus Christ is the solution to the greatest problem and he alone meets our most fundamental need for every single person. And when we place him at the center, he brings us together. And that leads to my second reminder. First, when we gather, we gather to Jesus, our Savior. But secondly, when we gather, we gather to Jesus, who is our source. And notice, for the first time in this chapter, another circle around the throne in heaven is acknowledged. We see it here in the heavenly response, and it makes John the apostle look around, and what does he see? He sees an international community from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and they are all gathered around Jesus. Look at verse 9. 
They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we see at the end of the Bible that all along it was God's purpose to save and to ransom people from every nation, every background. And here they are brought together and they are changed together. That's what's reflected in Revelation 5. In other words, Jesus is the source of our unity and he is the source for our transformation. That's what's pictured here. Reflect on that for a moment. First, he is the source of our unity. He is the one that brings us together. Because what we see pictured here is this vast crowd, and they are united, how? In common worship of a common Savior. Because it is in Christ that we find a shared identity which leads to a new unity and results in an incredible diversity. Now, here's why this matters for us in this cultural moment. This is so key. Because we live in a culture where the needs of the individual and the preferences of the individual is often placed above all else. And that is a problem. And the tricky thing is, we're all so immersed in individualistic culture that it's almost hard to see. It's like asking a fish what water is. They're like, what? I don't, what, what are you talking about? We're like so used to like having everything our way. And the question is not, is this true or does this matter? But do I like it? Is this experience? Are these people perfectly tailored for my individual preferences? Sadly, that is often the question, and it even happens in the church. Can we talk about this? Where many of our decisions, if we're honest, are based on personal preference over biblical conviction. The choice of whether to gather on a Sunday or go to a community group is often made on the basis of what I get out of it. Well, I don't, I don't know if I really like those people. Like, I don't know if the age demographic is perfectly, you know, tuned to my particular liking or taste. So it's just not really for me. I don't like that one song. They do that one song. Like, uh, I just, you know, it's just not for me. Church, as a result, can often become like Facebook just full of loose connections. And I was struck by this when I read the statement from the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom when I was living there. Listen to what he says. This is scathing. He says, the contemporary West is the most individualistic era of all time. Its central values are in ethics, autonomy. In politics, individual rights. In culture, postmodernism. And in religion, spirituality. Its idol is the self. Its icon, the selfie. In place of communities, we have flash mobs. We all just show up, but there's no connection. We're no longer pilgrims, but tourists. We no longer know who we are or why, and the result is that the 21st century has left us with a maximum of choice and a minimum of meaning. That's not good news. 
But you know what is good news? Jesus brings us together. And when he does, we can actually fulfill this call that Jesus has given us to love one another. Not because of our differences, but in spite of our differences. Listen, friends, when you join a church community, there are going to be people from different backgrounds. They're not going to share the same humor that you have. They may not share the particular political beliefs that you have. They might not be in your ideal age or stage of life demographic. But the point is you show up and you love them because Jesus loves them and Jesus loves you. And I will testify that some of the greatest transformation that has happened in my life is through particular people who at first I did not like. Can I say that? I just said it. Pastor just said that. Oh my gosh, the pastor is supposed to like everyone. Well, the truth is out. People I did not like, I did not get along with, they were frustrating. And yet over time, God used that person in my life powerfully. See, friends, the church should be a place where, where the, the outside onlooking world comes in and says, why in the world are you together? And you have one answer. It's Jesus. When people say, why are you together? Your, your answer shouldn't be, oh, well, we like to binge watch friends together on a Friday night in Ventura. That's why we're together. That's not why we're together. It's all about Jesus. And we model this when we gather together. We may not know everyone as much as we like. And we may not like the people we know in the church. And if anything, this last season has accented all of our individual opinions on many things, but even things that pertain to the church. And so on that, we must remember that our preferences are not the point. So the primary question, they could be fair questions, but they're not primary, is not, do I like the music? Do I like the lights? Do I like this building? Do I like the leaders? Don't answer that out loud. Uh, do I like that group? I'm not sure about the snacks they serve in kids' ministry. Cheese, it's really... I don't know if this is the church for me. What we should be asking is, does this point me to Jesus? And does this help me become like Jesus? That's the point. That's what we should be asking. Friends, when we gather, in spite of all these differences, and though they might be real, we are making a public declaration that Jesus Christ is the source of our unity. And this becomes a visual aid for the gospel a coming attraction to a world that is spiritually fractured. And what they need is not my opinion, they need the gospel. They need Jesus. And each time we gather on Sundays in, or in another setting that we have as a church, it's like a coming attraction of what will happen in the future. He's our source of unity. He's also the source of our change. In this heavenly scene, we see that they're not only brought together, they are changed together. Look again at the response of the crowd to Jesus. Singing of him, they say in verse 10, you have made them, the nations, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Christ has not withdrawn from the world's affairs when he ascended into heaven. But through his faithful followers, he continues to exercise both his royal and his priestly functions, which is to convey the blessing and the presence of God through his people. And he empowers us to do so. He changes us together. 
Because listen, when Jesus is your source, when Jesus is your center, his work makes you feel as royal as a king or queen and as clean as a priest. Isn't that amazing? That's a miracle. Though we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, when we're, when we're accepted by grace because of Jesus, we're made to feel like royals. And we're made through his forgiveness to feel as clean as a priest who's been sanctified and washed. That's what's conveyed in that phrase, kingdom of priests, which reveals where we get our power from and our purpose from. So for those of you that were a little frustrated that I said earlier, it's not about you, here's the twist. When you make it not about you and when you put Jesus at the center, all of a sudden you then become emboldened, empowered, encouraged. You get a greater sense of your purpose in this life. You get more courage and more boldness to live it out. That's what happens when Jesus is put at the center. And I know it goes against everything in our own natural nature, but Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life will actually lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. So on the one hand, we say, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. But when you make it about Jesus, all of a sudden you become transformed and renewed and you're like, now I know what I'm living for and I know where I'm headed. He's the source of our unity. He is the source of our transformation. And so in gathering around and to Jesus, we gather to receive. We receive from him that we might reflect him to the world. So when we gather, we receive his word. We teach the scriptures, which does its cleansing and transformative work by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But when we gather for this mission, we also receive by prayer. Prayer is the means by which we receive direction, healing, comfort, power, wisdom from Christ so that we might reflect him in our mission to the world. Friends, that's why in our services, we want to emphasize and not just assume that prayer is happening. So you'll notice the end of the service, we'll have men and women to my right and to my left. They're part of our prayer ministry here. And they're here to pray with you and for you and over you. So that whatever need you have, like, man, I need transformation in my marriage. Come and pray. You say, I need transformation in how I'm living my life at work. Come and pray. You say, I need healing in my marriage. Come and pray. I need healing in my body. Come and pray. I need guidance. I need a prophetic word. Come and pray. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that includes you and me. And this heavenly gathering of people who are centered on Jesus shows us that when we are fully and wholly focused on him, we will have a deeper understanding of who we are and what our role is in the world. And that's good news, isn't it? And what happens in response to all of this? What does their corporate response as they're gathered around and centered on Jesus and they're reminded of what has happened, what he has done, what is their response? They worship. And so lastly, friends, my reminder to you as we turn a corner is when we gather, we gather to Jesus as our Savior. He is our source. But lastly, he is also our song. He is our song. It is as they reflect upon the centrality and saving work of Jesus that they respond in epic praise. I mean, look at verses 11 and 12. Then I looked, John said, 
and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Do we see what's happening here? It's just epic praise for the one who is at the center. Because when we gather, we're reminded that the God who governs our world is not only our creator and our lawgiver. He is our redeemer and our savior. And friends, what I want us to see is when he's at the center, the fruit of that is joy. Notice the phrase repeated over and over again in this passage, you are worthy. You know what that means? To say to someone, you are worthy, or to something, you are worthy, what it means is, I'm going to add up all the reasons you are worth it and tell you about it. I'm I'm adding it up in my mind. I'm going it over. I'm mulling it over in my mind, all the reasons that you are worthy, and I'm allowing it to, to sink into my heart. That's what's happening when we're praising That's what happens when we're being led and called to sing and to praise and to worship. We're reminded that it's astounding that God, though he could have dealt with us and this world through strict and perfect justice, he sent Jesus to take that justice on our behalf so that we might have mercy and grace to be forgiven and accepted for all who believe. And it was all at infinite cost to himself. My goodness, friends, I never want us to get over the gospel. The minute that we as a church get over the gospel, we're doomed. Just want to put a real fine point out. Like, we are doomed. I was going to have you say that out loud, but that would be weird in a a church service. (laughs) We need to keep this front and center. And as you're reminded of this, oh my goodness, God gave everything for me. The response Wow, that's incredible. In praise, we let the reality of who God is sink into our hearts. This is also one of the reasons why we make so much space in our Sunday gathering for a musical response time of praise and worship and reflection. It's one of the reasons why we have what we call our second set, because we believe that the word of God leads to the worship of God. In our service, it's as we are reminded, as we discover who God truly is and all that he has done and will do for us, that we respond to him. And all we're trying to do, there's nothing special about this building. All we're simply trying to do is foster an atmosphere where we can focus on Jesus and express biblical postures of praise and worship. It's why we have carpets down here at the front. You're like, why do they have carpets? It's for you to come and kneel down and to lift your your hands like the elders even here in Revelation 5. When they are overawed by Jesus, they can't help but to fall down on their knees and say, you are worthy. We want to provide space for that. It's one of the reasons why we don't light our worship leaders like eight million lights because we want it to be all about Jesus. We want to foster an atmosphere where we are focused on him, delighting in him, praising him. And that's what worship is about. It's not about our preferences. It's about refocusing our hearts on Jesus and rediscovering our joy in him. Because I want you to remember this, friends. Our song 
is not only for his glory, it is also for our good. C.S. Lewis reminded me of this, nerd alert, by the way, I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis reminded me of this when he described how his view on praise and worship was changed during the life of his, or during his Christian life. It was changed by this truth. You see, like many of us, C.S. Lewis thought that giving praise to God, that call to worship, was a call to give God a compliment. As if he needed it, right? It's not like, worship is not about like God's had like kind of a low week. And on Saturday, he's like, guys, I'm not really feeling competent. So I'm just like waiting for my followers to gather together and we gather and we're like, you're worthy. And Jesus is like, oh, I feel better now. I really needed that, guys. Oh, thanks for that. Oh, I am the Savior. Oh, I kind of forgot that this last week. Friends, that's not happening. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is already worthy. He knows that. The call to worship is not a call for us to give him a compliment. The call to worship is for us to acknowledge who he truly is and for us to be changed in light of that. And one of the fruits of that is joy. Because that's the way God made us, right? We can't help but praise and rejoice in what we enjoy. In fact, we might even say that our enjoyment of something is not complete until we praise it. That's what C.S. Lewis said. Here are his words. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Isn't this the way that we function? Most of our enjoyment of something is not complete until we praise it. If you see the best movie ever, you have to tell someone about it. You're like, oh my word, let me tell you about this movie. Or like me, I support a particular sports team for better or for worse, which usually caused me a lot of mental and emotional trauma. But when there is a victory... I don't just like end the match and I'm like, we have won. I like, I have to, I text everyone. I listen to podcasts that relive the victory. I share it with my friends on social media, especially if they support our opponent team. I want to share, I want to delight in it. That completes my joy of the experience. Isn't that how we work? You go to a wedding, you say, that was beautiful. Oh, wasn't she, you know, just, her dress was incredible. That was amazing. Part of this call to worship is to acknowledge God for who he is and to be satisfied as we do it. The Bible in telling everyone to praise God is doing what all people do when they speak about what they care about and that is praise. I can't promise you going forward that the sermons are always gonna be amazing or this is always gonna be great or like awesome or this, that, and the other. But I'm promising you this we will always seek to magnify and lift up the name of Jesus. Whether the lights are working, they're not working. Whether the internet's working, not working. Whether there's lots of instruments or no instruments, lasers, no laser, like whatever. The point is Jesus and our commitment to lifting up his name. Because in every gathering, we are retelling and re-experiencing the beauty of the gospel. And as we respond... Jesus is glorified, and we are satisfied. When we gather, we gather to Jesus our song, and we say, you are worthy. And friends, right now is our opportunity to add up the worth of God in your own mind and heart. Let it sink in and respond. And as we do that, 
We're stirring up affection for Jesus. That's the point of everything. We're stirring up affection for Jesus in a world of lesser things. We're giving him his rightful place on the throne at the center. So my question for you is this. So we turn a corner, not just as individuals, but together. Where do you need to be re-centered on Jesus? If you're not yet a Christian, today is the day that you can be changed forever. Today is the day that you could say, I don't have an unshakable foundation. I don't have an unchangeable future. And I realize today that only Jesus is the one who can make it happen. And you can say today, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day to give me new life. And I want to know that my sins are forgiven, that I am accepted by you. Friend, if that is you, put your faith and your trust in Jesus today and be changed forever. And church, for us as a whole, where do we need to be recentered? Maybe your marriage needs to be recentered on Jesus. Maybe our preferences and our expectations need to be recentered on Jesus. Maybe our opinions need to be recentered and reshaped by who Jesus is. Our emphasis, our relationships, our commitments. The Holy Spirit is calling all of us to center the whole of our lives on Jesus. And as we do, we join in with this heavenly scene when they say, behold. Which means, take him into your heart as the one who is sacrificed for you. Will you behold him today? Will you take him into your heart, the one who was sacrificed for you and the one who was raised for you? That's what we're gonna do now because it is all about Jesus, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray first and foremost for those who do not yet know you, that if they're here in this room or joining us online, that right now, they would put their faith and their trust in you. That they would say from their heart, not just putting it off till later, but saying from their heart, Jesus, save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe you rose again to give me new life. Forgive me, accept me because of Jesus. Father, I pray those men and women right now would pray that from their heart and truly trust in you. And for us as a church, Lord, as we have this opportunity, a reminder from your word, we want to recenter the whole of our lives on you. We want the church to be all about you. We want our marriages to be about you. We want our parenting to be about you. We want our friendships and our time of of spending with amongst our neighbors and at work. We want it to all be about you. And so as we pray, as we take communion, as we stand, as we sit, or as we kneel, we want to put you at the center. And as we do, would you change us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we have this opportunity right now to do that. If you need prayer for anything, 
There are men and women to my left, to my right, up here with the lanyards. They're here to pray with you and for you. You can make your way through the row. Be courageous. You need healing. You need direction. You need power. You need strength. You need wisdom. Come and pray. Open your heart. Watch what God will do. Communion is available here in the front, the individual communion elements. And I invite you, as you reflect on Jesus, as you behold him and take him into your heart, I invite you to come down to the carpets and and take communion. You can get on your knees or you can stand. You can express these different biblical postures of worship. But as you do, remember that he's at the center. He died for your sins. He rose again. And we proclaim to the world that he is the answer. And as we sing, let's lift our voices, not out of obligation, but out of joy because he is worthy and we are satisfied because the name of Jesus is worth lifting up. Amen? Let's do that now. Let's praise the name of Jesus and let's respond to all that he has done for us.